And if, you, and if a father is known by his product or what their kids can do and learn, I'm awesome. I'm father of the year. We've been, uh, we've been working through Goliath, David and Goliath. How many of you, how many of you ever got sucked into the vortex that is VeggieTales? Anybody get drawn into that? and still trying to find your way back out of it. So we're in Veggie Tales, and we kind of live in David versus the giant pickle. Awesome. No, it's not. But my son has it a little bit confused. He thinks Goliath is the hero. He, um, Goliath takes care of David. No, he's mean. He's bad. Don't worry about it. And by the way, I, I have to check with Jeff and Kibby to jarn it. I'm not sure why, but the Philistines apparently had French accents. They, uh, anybody notice that? You're like, what? No. You bring us your champion. <laughs> so anyway, he's into Dave and, and Goliath. Everything he makes that's big, this is extension, this is how I know he's going to Harvard. Everything he makes that's big out of like Legos or blocks, it, he calls it a Goliath. And I'm like, that's my son. And then he took it to a whole nother level. The other day he took, like boys tend to do, kids tend to do, he had a, a number two, had a deuce. And so we went back, went back and I'm changing my son, my firstborn, pride of my life, undoing it. I go, oh, no, son. I go, buddy, that's a, that's a super pooper. And he goes, yeah, that's a Goliath. And so <laughs> I know right now I am father of the year because my kid has application skills. He can extend it. So anyway, today we're going to uh, build off of two thoughts, build off of two things. One goes back to what David spoke about in May at the family dinner. He talked about this idea of, he had this vision or thought of seeing these wells in our church. Not just one well of the body of the church, but these multiple smaller wells that are these places of life, these places of encounter, these places where healing and, and wholeness happens, where restoration happens. And so part of it's coming from that vision of, of us as a body, as individuals being wells. And the second part's coming off of our summer Wednesday night series of, of One Life. And this idea of having this integrated life, this whole life that's not divided or segmented. Uh, David, the first week, spoke on the idea of we fall into one or two categories. We're either segmenters, which we kind of break our lives into these little pieces. And some of them we are saying, God, you are here. You're welcome. Have at it. And other parts we kind of hold back and, and don't give them access to. And then the other idea was that we were jugglers, where we have all these different parts of our life that we're trying to keep up in the air and keeping it from crashing down but there's not necessarily purpose or direction in the juggling that we're doing. We just have a lot of activity. And so part of it comes from the idea that we're wells, that we're supposed to be these places of healing and wholeness, these places where fresh water comes out, where people can encounter this living God. And the other part is the idea of not living a fragmented, disjointed life where we say, God, we're going to have you here and give you access here, but we're going to keep you out on this side. So let me pray, and, uh, and we'll go into it. Father God, we do thank you, Lord, for, for this day, for this time. And Lord, I am excited about what you're doing at Stonebridge. I'm excited about what you're doing in our lives and our hearts individually. Uh, Lord, I pray today would be a day of release, that today would be a day where, where, where stagnant places or stagnant faith is awakened and comes fully alive. I pray that today would be a day where your grace and your mercy become common in our lives. They don't become the exception. They become the norm, Lord, that we live in a place of grace we live with great mercy, and Lord, we allow you to have full access into every part of our life. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us eyes and a vision to see where you need to move, that you would give us a heart that's willing and obedient, that we'd be submissive uh, to the surgery you want to perform. 
But Father God, I pray most of all that your name would be known, that your truth would be heard, and that real life would come in this place. It's in your awesome and holy name we pray. Amen. Ezekiel 47. We're going to be hitting several different pieces. But Ezekiel 47, starting in chapter, or verse 6, and then coming down from there. And, and let me set it up. Ezekiel 47 gives you this picture of he's brought before the throne, and he's standing there, and this water is coming forward from the throne. And as the water moves out, it increases in depth, going from ankle deep to knee and waist deep. And eventually, it becomes this overwhelming river that's overtaken to where they can't even stand up or hold their footing. And so from there, in, in verse 6, it says this. He says, Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And he said to me, This water flows towards the eastern region. And let's stop in verse 8 for one second. So on the banks of the river, where this river is flowing, where water is moving, because it says it flows, where water is moving and the river is flowing, there's life. There are trees there. There's abundance there. We're going to get into there's fish there. Everything around it is bringing life because this river of life, this water is flowing and moving and active. And so it says, he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the sea. And when it empties into the sea, the salt water, when it empties into the sea, that salt water there becomes fresh. And so this flowing river of water even has the ability to take places that are salty and turn it into life, to, to turn it into a body that can carry and support life. And then he goes down and it says, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because the water flows there and it makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. And, and, and kind of cement that idea in your mind is that as long as the water, as long as this living water, this river has access into all the different parts, there's life and there's abundance and there's richness and there's depth. And then it goes down and says, fishermen will stand along the shore and there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be, be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. And then in verse 11, this is the hinge point. It says, but the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. And if you, if you think about a swamp or a marsh, a swamp or a marsh is a place that's stagnant. There's no movement. It's closed off. Some water has gotten in, but it's become stagnant and stale, and it stinks. And it says that in these places where that fresh river, that fresh water doesn't flow and move, those places where it doesn't have access, it says that there's going to be no life. And I start connecting the dots of this idea in Ezekiel of flowing water, moving water. His move brings life. And the idea that we're talking about with one life of having this segmented, compartmentalized life where we don't give them access to different places. And so if we have shut off different sections or we're keeping him from different parts of our life, what we're saying is we're not going to have real life here. John 10.10 10 says this. It says, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come so that you may have life and have it abundantly. And I think in Ezekiel 47, we get this great picture of what this abundant life, this abundant richness looks like. There, there's, there's multiple varieties and kinds. There's, there's thriving. Trees are growing. Plants are growing. The water that was stale or salt, the, the water that was salty, it's becoming fresh, and now it can bear life. And so he says that I've come. I've come so you can have this complete, unified, singular, integrated life that's whole, that's full of life, that's full of diversity, that's full of richness. But on the front side of that, 
it says the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I think if you put it in this Ezekiel language, what you're looking at is the enemy comes to put up barriers or blocks in our life, these walls in our life, to keep that fresh living water from moving into certain parts so that we become stagnant and we start to stink. And different parts of our life start to stink. And so you start thinking about this idea of, of grace and this idea of the blockage. For me, I think this, one of the main areas where the enemy uses this wall, this blockage, is in our ability to forgive and release other people from wrongs they've done against us. Or it prevents us from engaging in and seeking and actively going after grace and forgiveness from somebody that we've wronged. And, and I think in both areas, I think whether it's we've been wounded, we've been hurt, and we're having a hard time releasing or forgiving somebody for what they've done to us, or on the other side, that we've wronged somebody else, and out of pride, out of vanity, out of ego, we say, maybe even out of fear of what they're going to do to us and their response, we say, I'm not going to seek or initiate forgiveness and healing and wholeness. Either way, you get the same idea, whether it's I'm not going to forgive somebody else or I'm not going to seek forgiveness for what I've done, the same idea gets at it is we get torn between this dichotomy of who God is. We know that God is a God of justice. He's a God of fairness. We know, we know that. But we also know that he's a God of grace. You have the law of human nature which says, I'm going to get mine. The law of human nature says, I'm going to get payback. I'm going to hold it against them. I'm going to make sure that they feel what they've done to me. Or the law of human nature says, hide, duck, and cover, and maybe it'll just go away. The wrong that you've done to somebody, the hurt that you've caused somebody, just keep your chin down, keep moving forward, and, and don't worry about it. Basically, we get caught up in this idea of this law of human nature, and we quickly move past or maybe never really fully engage and get to the idea of his divine nature, which says, I've already taken care of that. You, you don't need to worry about justice because I am justice. You don't need to worry about being right because you can't be right. You need to lay down your right to be right because I'm the only one that truly is right. But we get caught in that dichotomy of I'm not sure if I go on the justice side or if I fall on the grace side. And human nature tends to say, go with the justice. I think from our human palate, you think about when you're a little kid, you don't understand complex flavors. You get simple things. My kid eats bar. My kid eats cheese. My kid eats yogurt. Done. That's it. He doesn't understand complex flavors. You can't give him complex food with seasoning and spices. He doesn't get it because his mouth, his palate isn't developed and formed to really taste it. And I think from us, on a humanly standpoint, absent of his revelation and his spirit, our humanly palate doesn't get grace. It doesn't taste right to us because outside of him and his spirit moving in us, we can't understand the complexity of it. We can't fully operate in the complexity of it. And, and so I think that we desire justice, and what he says is, you need to fall heavily on grace. You need to allow me to move and, and go into these things that you're doing. I think the hard part about that is the more that we seek justice, the more that we try to hang on to either, either I'm going to make it right out of my own flesh. I, th I think this is a guy thing as much as it is a girl thing. A guy thing is, I'm going to make it right. I've wronged somebody. I've hurt somebody. I need to earn my way back into their good graces. I need to earn my way back in. I need to do their yard work for the next 12 months. Or I need to wash their car and dog for the next two years. Or I need to, to, to write some big sonnet or love letter to explain it. And I think we get caught up in this doing, this activity of I'm going to make it right. 
or we get caught up in the activity of, I'm going to work hard to act like it never happened and cover it up. Guy, guy thing is, you've been wrong, you've been hurt, but you're a guy, so deal with it, suck it up, and move on. Don't acknowledge it, don't give it life, just suck it up and move past it, and it'll take care of itself. And I think, I think the tendency there is we operate out of flesh, and when you operate out of flesh, you get caught up in this vicious cycle, this vicious kind of hurt-go-round this hate go round of we just keep the same thing going and going. The only thing that can break the cycle of ungrace, the only thing that can break the cycle of continual hurting is the unrelenting passion and goodness of his grace. You can't ever earn it. You can't ever do enough to fix it. You can't ever make it right. It's simply grasping and understanding the bigness of his grace. How many of you have... And, and I'm sure it's not you and, and what you're doing. How many of you have these family arguments that start off on something meager and small and dumb, and then they escalate into something that's massive? They fester a little bit. It's Maybe it's over what TV show we're going to DVR and watch, or maybe it's over what we're going to have for dinner, or who's doing dinner, or who should have changed the kids. How many of you have the little family things that spiral out of control? Anybody ever had a debate over how much sugar costs? How much sugar? How much is sugar? How much is a bag of sugar? Molly, bag of sugar, how much? Two fifty. Two fifty. It's like the prices, right? We're playing the the, hit, the climber game. Two, three, th four, four. Two fifty. Bag of sugar. Mary Carr wrote a book called The Liars Club, which is kind of this self-reflective memoir of her life growing up, and she talks about her uncle and her aunt in Texas. Uncle and aunt, aunt had this argument. Now they lived in this small little house, rural Texas, on this one-acre plot of land. They had an argument one night over sugar. She bought sugar. He thought she paid too much for sugar. And so, bam, fight starts. Now, you're thinking, that's dumb. That's dumb. Anybody ever had an argument over something like sugar? Let's call it a sugar-like debate. Maybe it's a substitute. Maybe it's a sweetener, artificial. I don't know. Anybody ever had, like, a sugar-like debate where it's something small, and the next thing you know, I, I hate you. We're going to sleep in separate rooms. No? Okay. That was my grandparents. They slept in twin beds down the hall from each other, and both of them were armed, which is fantastic. <laughs> it's like guns here, guns here, don't come down the hall. This argument over sugar in Texas, it spiraled out of control. They just said, we're not going to talk to each other. And so they didn't talk to each other for 40 years. They didn't talk to it. They stayed married. They must have listened to David's talk on divorce. They stayed married. But they didn't talk to each other for 40 years. And then at one point, he took it to the next level, and he says, you know what? That's not good enough. The sleeping in separate that's not good enough. He took a lumber saw and cut his house in half with a lumber saw. Then he took plywood and boarded up the sides of it. And then apparently, it was a mobile-type home. He took one half of it, moved it about... 300 feet over behind some pine trees, and for 40 years, that's how they lived out. Not talking, same plot of land, 40 years, sugar. And you're like, that's stupid. There's no way that happens. It happens. And so the question is, how do you, how do you break that cycle? Because ungrace, unforgiveness does this. It has this inherent quality of it metastasizes which means it's going to grow, it's going to spread, it's going to move into other areas of your life. You, you, you can't live this completely isolated, segmented life. This ungrace, and, and let's flat out call it what it is, 
Anytime you're holding grudges, anytime you have this ungrace or unforgiveness in your heart, it's sin. And what sin does, sin tends to metastasize. It tends to replicate. It tends to expand into other parts of your life. Bitterness here is going to bleed out of this box. Anger and venom here is going to bleed out of this box. And so the only way to break this cycle of ungrace is, is through this unrelenting, powerful force of grace. Jesus on a cross says that. Now this is, this is the height of his agony. Jesus on a cross at the height of his agony. He's been beaten. He's been stripped. He's been whipped with a, with, with a cat of nine tails. He's been nailed to wood. He's had thorns pressed into his flesh. He's been abandoned by his friends and his buddies. At the height of his agony, in the midst of his suffering, at a, at a point where anybody should say and could say, you have a right to be angry. You have a right to hold a grudge. You have a right to throw it against somebody. At the height of his pain and discomfort, the words off of his lips are, Father, forgive, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive, for they know not what they do. What that says to me is, I give up my right to be right. I'm not going to argue about sugar. I'm not going to get torn up about sugar. I'm not going to get torn up about who was right in this meaningless little argument. Now you're thinking, all right, those are easy. Sugar's easy. I can get past the sugar debate. What about my husband or my wife who had an affair on me? What about... The, the, the cruelty that happened to me as a kid? What happened about the abuse or the neglect or the abandonment that happened to me as a kid? And that's tough. And, and that's, a, that's a hard, hard deal. And there's a lot of layers to, to pull apart and work through. But at the end of the day, it gets back to the same point. His heart is grace. His heart is mercy. And his heart says, Father, forgive, for they know not what they do. I release you of that. There's two words. One, one word is resent. Resentment. And what resent really means is to feel again. It means to pick back up. It means to grab a hold of and hang on to. So literally when I am resentful or I am resenting something that's happened to me in my past, what I'm saying is I'm continuing to feel it again. I'm picking it back up and hanging on to it. I think we easily say the words I forgive. My, 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 my two-year-old knows this. He knows how to say, I'm sorry. Even before he gets caught, he knows how to say, I'm sorry. You hear him doing something, and then he gets real quiet for a while, and then he comes running in the room, and he, Mommy, I'm so sorry. He, like, throws his chin, I'm so sorry. He knows how to say, I'm sorry, and then about two hours later, he does the exact same thing. He falls back into the same, and then he, we get this cycle of compliance. I understand what I'm supposed to do, so I come out and I say, I'm sorry, but I don't really break the cycle I don't really feel it enough. I don't really change enough to move away from it. And what resentment on big kid adult level means is that, that I can say to you, yeah, you hurt me, I forgive you, it's okay, let's move on and get down the road. But in my heart and in my gut, what I'm saying is I'm mad. I'm angry and I can't let go of that. I keep hanging on to that. And what it does is it makes me a prisoner to my past. It makes me a prisoner to my history. I can't move into this life abundantly because the enemy is kill, stealing, killing, and destroying my joy by having this feeling in my gut that I can't get past. And so resentment means that I hang on to it, that I keep picking it back up. True repentance, to repent means that I put it down, that I turn around and I walk the opposite direction, that I move away from it. 
And so I think the hard part for us with grace and forgiveness and wholeness is we easily get caught up in compliance mode of it's okay, no problem, let's move on. But in our heart of hearts, we're saying, oh, it just burns me up. And so we have to come to this point of repentance where we truly say, I'm putting it down and I'm relinquishing my right to pick it back up and use it against you, to throw it back in your face. How many times have you had those arguments where it's five years down the road and you've dealt with something and all of a sudden it's like highlight and you scoop it and you throw it back in their face? We've already dealt with it. We've already moved past it. You know, remember that time where you came home late and you didn't tell me where you were going to be and you never called and I was upset and I was waiting up for you and, and you didn't call and then, that's okay, babe, let's move past it. We're good, we're okay. And then five years later, you think you've dealt with it, you've had the compliance of we've talked about it, we discussed it, we gave it lip service, but in your heart it's been stewing for the opportune moment to be brought back out and thrown back in somebody else's face. Real repentance says, not only do I say with my mouth, I release you from that, it says that with my heart, I say, I'm not going to pick that back up and throw it back at you. And that's tough. Because all, all of those things, all of that repentance, all of the, excuse me, all that ungrace, all of that unforgiveness, you put up these walls that keeps his living, fresh water from flowing into you and then by default from coming out of you. David said he had this vision of us as a body being individual wells of life where people come for a drink, where people come for freshness, where people come for healing and for wholeness, where people come to have an encounter with a God that's bigger than our weaknesses and bigger than our failures. And in order for that living water to be bubbling in us and through us, there has to be this barrier broken down where we can say, I've dealt with this junk. I've dealt with this stuff. And if, if you look in if you look in Matthew 5, 21 20 through 26, It says, you've heard, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment as well. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which is a, a, a word of contempt, is answerable to, answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If I truly want to engage in this spirit-to-spirit encounter of true worship and engagement where I say, you are my God and I'm your guy and we're all going hard after it. If I want to truly have that spirit-to-spirit worship and encounter, then these barriers of ungrace and forgiveness need to be broken down. And some of you, uh, I am, and let me preface everything with this, this this hit me hard. This this message that was kind of laid on me hit me hard. We were joking about it. We had some dinner with some friends last night, and it was right before we were going out to dinner. We got in one of those little marital things where it's like you're not really sure what you're frustrated with, but you know you're frustrated, and it's kind of like I'm I'm frustrated. But what are you? Fr- I, I don't know. What do you, I, okay. And so we just sat there and we did the stare and look and move away. And we're having dinner with friends, and they said, "Well, what are you talking about tomorrow?" I said, Grace, how about a big old heaping of that, huh? Let's take, a, let's take a big old spoonful of that. And so I'm not speaking from this place of I've got this thing figured out and got it together. And here we, I'm speaking from a place of this continually hits me in the face. 
of just how ungraceful I can be in the small things and the big things about how much ungrace that's still in my heart. And so it says that, that, that before you enter into true worship and engagement, before you truly engage spirit to spirit, there's this, let's flesh this out. Let, let, let's get this stuff out so we can really move forward and get past these barriers so as living water can move in. And if you go to Philippians 2, 1 through 8. And let me set this up with this. Philippians 2, 1 through 8. If my goal and target, and it should be, is I want to live Jesus. I want to live this, this Jesus life. What that also means is I have to live this cross life. And, and, I, and I, met, I shared this at One Life the other night. Jesus, I know, did at least these two things. Jesus, in his mission, in his purpose, in his complete focus and singular life, he made this decision, I'm walking to the cross. I'm going to walk to a place where, where death happens because I know that in order for real life to come, this death has to proceed. And so if we're going to have his real life, living water move into us, there are some things in our heart that are going to have to die. There's some anger, there's some bitterness, there's some jealousy, there's some, there's some things in our heart that are going to have to die. And the second thing is I know that he walked out of the tomb. I know that there was resurrection. And there's some dead places that we're living in, dead relationships, dead emotions and feelings. Maybe it's towards our current spouse. Maybe there's even dead emotions towards that. But there are some dead places in our life, business dealings or arrangements, friendships or relationships. There are some dead places that I have to make a decision like he did that I'm going to choose to walk out. I need passion resurrected in my life, and I need flesh crucified. And so if I want to break through and break past this cycle of ungrace, I have to make a decision that I'm going to live a cross life. He died a cross death so I can live a cross life. And in Philippians 2, 1 through 8, it says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, again, it gets back to that one life, every part of me for every part of him. If you have any encouragement from being unified with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded. He, he didn't go to the cross and say, nah, it's not worth it. He didn't go to the cross and say, I'm going to die for a couple of them, but not this group. He didn't go to the cross and say, I wish I really didn't. He went to the cross and he said, for you, for all of you, there's all of me. And so he says, I want you to be like-minded. I want you to be all for me with all of you. And he keeps going down. He says, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And let's be honest, if I hold grudges or if I refuse to seek forgiveness, all it is is I'm being selfish. The whole part of it is I'm being selfish. It's about self-preservation or it's about self-motivation. And so he says, being like-minded, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also the interest of others. If I'm not forgiving and releasing, or if I'm not seeking forgiveness and seeking release, then I'm not truly serving others. There's a self part of it where there's something that happens in me, but there's also an outward function of, it releases other people from the same feelings and emotions. 
And so look to the interest of others. And it says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, grace and mercy, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. If anybody had a right to demand justice, it was him. He didn't demand justice. He offered grace. He says, but he made himself as nothing, that he poured himself out, taking the very, na very nature of a servant. He says, being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He says, be like-minded. He says, do what I did. Walk where I walked and walk out of what I walked out of. If you want to have real life abundance, don't allow the enemy to keep kicking you around and beating you up and saying, I'm going to hold you back. Say, I'm going to choose to allow breakthrough to happen in my life, even if that means I have to humble myself and call. Anybody watch the show? I hope not, because it's awful. Anybody watch the show Earl? Good. <laughs> You're not admitting it if you do. Some of you are like doing that secret little, yes, yes I do. Some of you have that naughty little secret, you watch Earl. I get it, it's fine. But, but the whole premise is, this guy, he, he feels like he's having this bad karma. And so what Earl's doing is he goes back to all these people that he's wronged in his past, and he tries to do something to make up for all the wrong that he did, all the people that he hurt. And I think that's part of the vision that we get is, well, I'm going to have to go back and, and do something for these people from 15, 20 years ago. And the reality of it is this. They can't give you release. Their response, your forgiveness, your grace and release is not dependent upon their response. Your grace and forgiveness and release is dependent upon your request. When you say, Lord, I need you to forgive me, and you go to the person and you say, I need you to forgive me for what I did. I was wrong, and what I did, I know it hurt you. I need you to release me. Your release is not dependent upon their response. Your release is dependent upon your request. And so he says simply, Go. And then in 1 Peter, we'll wrap it up here. 1 Peter 2, it says this. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. And like newborn babies, I have a seven-month-old. Love him. Awesome. Fantastic. He is a thick chunk. He is awesome. And we, we were in there, and, and I'm thinking about newborn babies and grace and, and how they forgive so easily. We were in there, I was changing my two-year-old, and two-year-old was on the little scoop deal, the V thing that keeps them in play like bumper cars so they don't fall out. He's on that, and there's this little spot at the end of the bed. Molly had to run do something, so she places, and this is my fault, not hers, she places the, the seven-month-old at the end of the bed, on the end of the bed. So two-year-old's here in the scoop deal, seven-month-old is here, end of the bed, is where, where Webb keeps his goodies. It's the bucket of goodness. There's trains, and there's rails, and sharp objects, because we're awesome. And there's all kinds of stuff in this bucket of goodness at the end of the bed. And so my seven-month-old is laying on the edge. I go to drop some dirty items, some soiled items, over in the bucket over here. Two-year-old gets down and decides he loves his brother. He wants to see his brother. So he gets off the bed and presses on the end of the mattress. Not good. It was like mousetrap. He presses on the end of the mattress. The seven-month-old rolls twice, does a header face first into the bucket of goodness, trains everywhere, rails everywhere. He ricochets up. He did a triple Wendy. I'm not going to lie. He did a triple Wendy. He ricocheted up, double flip, bam, on the ground. Didn't make a noise. I'm like, 
and I'm waiting. It's one of those things you don't want to go, but you need to go, but you don't want to go, and you really don't want your wife to walk in. And so I'm like, eh. And I, and I go over there, and all of a sudden he starts to cry, and I pick him up, and I hold him, and then I, and this is like five seconds, and I pull him back, and he's crying, and he goes, <laughs> and it's like, Grace, Grace, I know you're not father of the year. I know you let me go into the sharp objects at the end of the bed. I know that you let me ricochet three times and hit the hard one. I know that, but I love you. I, I think what babies get is this. We need each other. We're dependent upon each other. He needs me to provide the care to, other than throwing him in a bucket of sharp things. He needs me to take care of him and feed him and change his diapers. He understands that, that we need each other. And so in 1 Peter where he's saying that, that, that like newborn babies, you crave pure spiritual milk. Pure spiritual milk is this. There's a God that loved us so much that saw past our sins, that saw past our transgressions, who said, I'm going to come to earth, take the form of man, live a perfect life, walk to a cross, and die for you. So if I'm going to be a newborn baby filled with grace and mercy and release, I'm going to be quick to forgive, and I'm also going to be quick to crave the things that are his so that you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Go to that last part. It says now that you, you will grow up in your salvation. We talked earlier about how we have these immature palates in the flesh. We have these immature palates in the flesh that we don't really get the taste of grace because it doesn't make sense to us. We, we taste justice more readily than we taste grace. It says grow up in your salvation. Grow up in your spiritual development. Your palate is going to develop to the point to where grace is the only thing that makes sense. I have zero desire to go back and eat baby food. Zero desire. It is nasty. It smells bad. It doesn't process. It just kind of keeps the same color all the way through. I, I want nothing to do with baby food because my palate has matured and moved beyond that. And I think spiritually, our palate should move beyond the taste of justice is what makes sense and move into the only thing I, gr I crave is his grace. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. And so Bo and, uh, and, and Katie are going to come back up, and I think there's some ministry teams that are going to come down front. I think we fall into one of these categories. Anybody watch the show? Let's be honest. Five years ago, before I got married, I was a guy, and I watched guy shows where they played sports and they killed things. I got that. I was a man. And then I got married, and then I started watching girl shows. It just happens. I don't know. Anybody, anybody in the transition with me? Anybody go through that where you're, like, you're not going to admit it, are you? Your wife's sitting right next to you. You're like, I love watching those shows with you. It's what I would choose also. Wrong. <laughs> and, and I think they fall into a couple categories. It's either the I want to watch the home improvement shows, which is, is borderline manly because there's tools involved. And it's kind of like <laughs> until you start listening to the host and you're like, no, that's not manly. But <laughs> there's like the home improvement shows that's somewhat manly because they have tools. Then you have like the cooking shows, you know what I'm talking about, where they cook things and cook things. And they try to make it sportsy. Welcome to Stadium Kitchen. No, it's not. It's a cooking show. It, it's nothing, right? And then there's the fashionista shows where it's like they're going to show you how to dress and what not to wear, which I, I think I was on. It's, and they fall into those categories, right? How many of you watch this little nugget of gold, Hoarders? Anybody watch Hoarders? Who's a Hoarders person? Thank you. One person? Who's ever seen Hoarders? Okay. Hoarders is like Jerry Springer for the more sophisticated palate. 
Because you watch it for the exact same reason. You watch it because you're like, at least my house isn't that. You feel bad about how dirty your house is. There's some like tumbleweeds on the side and cat balls and all that. There's, you're like, at least my house isn't this. They go into these people's homes, and it's like a Disney ride because you go in the front door, and there's this goat trail that meanders from like the living room into the kitchen, and it's piled high, and it's like there's like the Snoopy slush, slushy machine. Why? I don't know. And then there's like the 72 Buick Skylark in the living room over here, and you're like, it's a planner. Don't worry about it. You wouldn't understand. And, and then they're like collectors. They call themselves collectors. Wrong wrong. I have 5,328 lighthouses. You could have stopped at five. That's a, that's, a, that's a gracious plenty. But on hoarders, here's the problem with most of them. They have no idea. They don't understand they have a problem. It's just life. It's just their stuff's, their stuff's piled up, and they've learned how to navigate around it, but they don't recognize, wait a second, something bad's happening around here. So I think some of us fall into that category from a ungrace. I got you up early. I'm sorry. Some of us fall into that category. <laughs> You're taking a nap on the stool, don't worry. You're in the treehouse. You feel good back there, don't you? Some of us fall into that category spiritually where it's, it's we don't even recognize these little remnants of ungrace that are in our lives. Maybe we've had that compliance stage of we said, I release you, I forgive you, I'm going to move past it. But, but in our heart, we've never done that. I'm going to let you flush it out. I'm going to repent and refuse to pick it back up. So some of us fall into that first category of we don't even recognize that, that this stuff's there and that it's impeding this life abundance. Some of us fall into the category of either A, we don't care. We know it's there. We recognize it and we don't care. We're not going to put the time in to do anything about it. I'm not going to humble myself and go back to this person from five years ago and give them the satisfaction that you hurt me, that you wounded me. I'm not going to do that. Or we fall into the category of I'm scared to death of what they're going to say. I'm scared to death of their response, and so we just don't engage. I think a third group of us kind of fall into the, I tried it. I, I really wanted to, and then I, it just wasn't working, so I gave up. I was trying to do it out of flesh. I was trying to live, of it, live out of it in my own, my own being, and it went to a dead end, so I just kind of gave up there. Some of us fall into the category of we're going for it, but we're getting tired. We, we, we really want to live this cross life. We really want to live a life of grace and mercy and be able to offer it, but we're tired, and we need co-laborers. We need people to go alongside of us. Eric Peddle and his family are up here, and we're praying for them as they go to Seattle, and, and, and his co-laborers, his people gathered around him to say, we're for you. We encourage you. We're going to be a part of your life, whether it's here or in Seattle, and some of us just need co-laborers to stand alongside us and say, we're your people. We're going to walk with you as you go through this. And I think some of us fall into the category of, we talked about spiritual recidivism a couple months ago. We fall into this category of we keep falling back into the same pattern of ungrace. And, and quick, recidivism simply looks at a criminal goes to jail and they get out and they go back to jail. And so recidivism just simply looks at what's the rate at which people commit a crime, go to jail, get freedom, get released, and then commit another crime and go back into prison, into this dead place. And I think our spiritual recidivism, our ungraced recidivism, is exceptionally higher than the 50% that's the norm. And so I think some of us need to break that cycle of ungrace and say, Lord, I want you to invade every part of my life. I want to be fully integrated. I want to have one life that's completely open to where you're going and what you're doing.
And so I'm going to pray for us, and I think we have some ministry teams that are going to come down front. Some of you, some of you need this. Some of you don't need, you don't need these teams on the side. Some of you don't even need to come down here front. Some of you, what you need is simply to say, Lord, I want you to show, in my, show me in my heart where are these places of ungrace. I want you to make that clear to me. Wouldn't it be neat if this happened? My, my son always says, Daddy, can I get some milk up in here? I think he gets it from his mom because she went to Marietta. But he's like, Daddy, can I get some milk up in here? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be fantastic if, if some church broke out up in here? If it wasn't about these prayer teams on the side or this magical place up front, but if it's church broke out up in here, it's I, I, I don't need this special person here. I need my friends standing around me in this place to say, I'm walking alongside you, and I want to pray with you. Wouldn't it be awesome if it broke out up in here? And so I'm going to pray for us. And um, wherever you fall, whatever your need is, if, if you want to just jump up and throw in and engage in worship, launch. If you want to, like it says in Matthew, if you want to make it right, if you feel like something's on your heart, this burden on your heart, that you're holding something against someone, and you need to lay that down, that this will be a time where you lay it down. Maybe you just need that Ezekiel 47, 11, thought to hit you in the head and say I have these swampy, marshy, stagnant places in my life that I need his river to break through and life to flood because there's no abundance there wherever you fall I just pray that this would be a time where you'd say let that happen let's, let's let that happen so I'm going to pray and uh, you can finally go let's pray Father God we do thank you Lord so much for, uh, for the bigness of who you are we thank you that you're a God that said, I'm going to choose a cross death, and I desire for my people to live a cross life. Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart that's humbled before you, a heart that's open to what you're going to do. I pray that you would give us full confidence in who you are and the fact that you're right, and we would lay down our right to try to be right. Father God, expand our vision of what's possible. Break our hearts for the things that break yours. Give us eyes to see into people and not see around them or through them. Father, give us a heart that's humble enough to say, I made a mistake and I need you to forgive me. Father, use this time. It's in your awesome and mighty name we pray. Amen.